less than formal here, which obviously isn't my cup of tea anyway, but I had surgery on my meniscus, so that just saved me from answering that 600 times. Second question, how did you do it? This will save me 600 more times. Yes, it was playing sports. Third, let's just get it all over with. I know I'm getting old. Just, all right? Just now that that's out of the way, if you have your Bible this morning, if you'll turn to the Gospel of John chapter 4, I told someone, when your car gets old, you just take it in for repairs and get a tune-up and get back on the road, but they reminded me, but you drive it a little more slowly as it gets older, so I'm working on that, and I'm very thankful. It feels fine. It's not a big deal, so anyway, we're talking about the abundant life that Christ offers, and this morning, we're going to talk about the concept of finding satisfaction and contentment with Christ. Remember the old rock and roll song, I can't get no satisfaction. I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. There's something about being broken and sinful that we're constantly looking around for something to make us happy. And so we're on this quest, this search, and we stuff ourselves with stuff in hopes that somehow this next relationship, this next promotion, this next vacation, this next experience is going to bring me this sense of, wow, now I've really found it. And, and, and it's funny because we, we all fall into this, but we find over and over again that once we have that which we thought was going to satisfy us, it doesn't. And so we begin the journey again. What we're going to learn this morning is as we're going through John and Jesus promised the abundant life, is the first thing that Jesus is going to teach us this morning is that the abundant life comes when we find our satisfaction in the all-sufficiency of Christ. And I want us to look at that this morning because this is not just for unbelievers, but it's for us as well. So let's pray together and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. and Thank you for the people that are coming to learn your word and thank you that your word points us to Jesus. And I want to find more joy and satisfaction in Christ. And I thank you for the refreshment and blessing that he has brought to my soul. And I pray that he will do the same for all of us. We, we look to you and we pray that you will be glorified as we look at the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Whoa, that happened last time too. This, this chair... Supposed to lock me in there. Woo, that would have been fun. <laughs> you would have all laughed hysterically at my pain. Okay, remind me not to lean back. So, I want to, want to remind you, last week, if you're starting with us, to start reading the Gospel of John, you can listen to sermons online to get caught up if you haven't been here. But last week, we saw that the, the need to be born again. We saw that if we're really going to have a relationship with God, it has to start with God changing our heart, taking away my old heart, giving me a new heart that desires him, that, that transforms me from the inside. And the reason we can do that is God loved the world. He gave Jesus. But then once I'm born again, then I'm learning to exalt Christ in my body. I'm learning to, to allow him to increase and me to de de decrease. Now, this morning we're going to see Jesus encounters someone very different from Nicodemus. There are all types of sinners out there. There are religious sinners who are trying their very best, but depending on their works. And then there are irreligious sinners, and they really don't care. They don't care about God. They, they really 
just are letting it all hang out. But we learn from Jesus that it's always the same thing. We need to talk about sin. We need to talk about the Savior. And we need to offer people what Christ and only Christ can give them. Jesus didn't have a canned set of four spiritual laws. But he always talked about sin and salvation and repentance and faith. And so this morning, Jesus encounters this woman from Samaria who had a very immoral past. But we learn from this woman, and and Christians have benefited and been blessed so much throughout history as we think of this, this analogy of finding living water and satisfaction in Christ. So let's get started in chapter four. When therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself wasn't baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, if you were to look on a map, the promised land has Judea down in the south, Galilee in the north, and Samaria is right in the middle. And it's about a 60-mile distance from Galilee to, to Judea. And so when Jesus would go back and forth from Jerusalem to Galilee, that's a, that's a long trip. But Samaria, this in-between place, had a, a group of people that Jews didn't like. They were a half-breed group of Assyrian Jews who had real animosity towards the Jews. And, and, and likewise, they had set up their own rival religion. They had their own worship, their own Bible, and they really didn't like each other. And Jews especially felt that they were better than the Samaritans. So they rarely gave them the time of day. But Jesus, it says, had to pass through Samaria. And while geographically that's true, some have argued that Jews normally went around. They didn't cut through Samaria. But that's not probably as strongly attested as it it was earlier suggested. The point is, Jesus had a divine appointment. Jesus is always seeking lost people. Now, he's no longer doing this in the flesh. He's doing it through you and me now. But nevertheless, we're his hands and feet now to do these same things, to find our divine appointments. And they can happen at any time. Verse 5 says, He came to a city of Samaria called Sychar near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. And it was about the sixth hour, which is about noon. Now, when you look at the Old Testament and, and you think about what it says about wells, it's awful easy for us to spin off into all kinds of interesting metaphors. Isaiah 12 talks about drawing from the well of salvation. But it is interesting that Jesus is going to use this well and water to illustrate the idea that we can only find satisfaction from him. Verse 7 says, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. I want to point out a couple historical things that might be of interest. Number one, it would be rare for a woman to come to a well by herself. It would be dangerous. And so normally back then, women went to the well in groups. Secondly, you wouldn't go to the well at high noon. It's just too hot. That's the worst time to go to the well. And perhaps here, there's a reason why this woman is by herself coming at noon. Because we're going to learn that she was immoral and perhaps had broken relationships. And maybe we're to sort of make note that this woman had made a mess of her life. 
And what I like about Jesus, it's so cool that Jesus loves to engage with people who've made a mess of their lives. That, that's, that, that helps me, you know. How many of you know someone that made a mess of their life? Yeah. And Jesus is all about putting us back together. There's no Humpty Dumpties with Jesus. But he meets us where we are. He deals frankly with us about our sin. But he offers us such a good, good offer of grace. So Jesus begins to engage this woman. He says, hey, could you give me a drink? And it says his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So the nearest Chick-fil-A was probably, you know, a quarter mile away. So they're getting food. Verse 9 says, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman? And John points out, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It was unusual for a man to talk to a woman in private, let alone a Jew to address a Samaritan woman. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. That's really kind of profound. He's like, if you knew two things, I know something you don't know. If you knew two simple things, who I am and the gift of God, this conversation would have started entirely different. I wouldn't have been asking you. You'd have been asking me. Now, we want to stop and ask ourselves, what do you think he means here by the gift of God? Because one of the interesting comments I read was that this was a term that the Jews used for the Torah, the gift of God. And so it's possible here that Jesus is simply saying, if you knew the Old Testament scriptures and you knew who I was, then you would have been asking me. But I'm not sure that that's probably what Jesus had in mind here. When, when he spoke of the gift of God, it seems to me that the Gospel of John portrays the gift of God as eternal life through Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And it's really important to keep reminding ourselves that the whole Christian experience is a gift of God's grace, right? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is everlasting life. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul talks about how Christ had given himself. And then he says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And so what a, what a great reminder. If, if, Ma'am, if you knew who I was and the grace that I afford, Jesus is saying, and how I can freely pardon you and, and give you a new life, you would be asking me. But, but she's not there yet. And so she says to Jesus, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. One commentary said it's probably, uh, it was probably 100 feet deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Now, I want to make a note here. The phrase living water was used back then for a bubbling spring of fresh water. I mean, think about it. If you were living in, a, in a, like a barren, arid, desert-like climate, which most of the year hardly had any rain, to have a well is great, but to have... A bubbling spring, that's like off the chart, incredible. Living water, bubbling, fresh, clear, cold, living water. Now, 
Jesus is obviously trying to turn the transition to get her mind towards spiritual things. But she's stuck on this living water. Jesus says in verse 13, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. Anybody here have a favorite water? My favorite water is Fiji. When my wife and I were in seminary, we were very poor. And she said, Tom, could we get bottled water? I said, well, I think the tap water is fine. She said, no, I could tell the difference. And being a skin flint, I said, all right, here's the deal. I'm going to chill bottled water and tap water. If you can tell the difference, we're getting bottled water. She failed. So we didn't get bottled water. My mean, I was cheap. Work with me. I'm learning. 30 years later, I buy her a waterfall if she needs it. But the point here is that Jesus is talking about a, a water that supersedes the physical desires. He says, the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And I think what Jesus is clearly referring to here is the Holy Spirit. If you'll turn over to chapter 7 for a moment, I want you to look at a verse there. When Jesus invites people to himself, he appeals to different needs in their life. Sometimes Jesus simply flat out warns them of hell. Jesus spoke more about hell than he did of heaven. He said, flee from the wrath to come. Unless you repent, you're going to perish. But there were other times that he would appeal to man's need. In Matthew 11, Jesus said, if anyone's weary, come to me, you who are weary, and I'll give you rest for your soul." In John chapter 7, verse 37, Jesus said, If any man's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Well, what's he mean by that? Well, look at the next verse. But this he spoke of the Spirit. This he spoke of the Spirit. So I want to suggest... That in seed form, what Christ is saying to this woman is, Madam, the real satisfaction in life can never be found in, in things. It can only be found in me as I pour out my spirit inside of you. As you receive me as Lord and Savior, I will fulfill you and overflow from you in ways that nothing in this world can do. And if you're still kind of on your journey here and you're like, I'm interested in Christianity. I'm interested in this born-again stuff. Can I, can I cut to the chase and tell you that what you need is not religion. You need Christ. And anything else will never satisfy you. A friend of mine that I've witnessed to for years, he said to me, Tom, there's something missing in my life. Of course, I know what it is. But he says, don't tell me it's Jesus because he's going to have to convince me apart from this book. Well, at that point, I don't have much to say because it is Jesus. We have this vacuum inside of us, this, this emptiness that really, when you think about it, isn't that what most everybody's doing? They're running around trying to find what makes us happy. Pascal even suggested that people do that even in suicide. We're seeking to find happiness, contentment, relief. And so we kind of watch and we go, it's like a game, isn't it? It's, 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 it's like I just 
chase that rainbow and I, then I find that pot of gold and, and, and then I'm on to something else. And so we try it in relationships. People go through midlife crisis. Maybe I'll trade in for a younger woman. Or maybe it's that new car. Maybe it's if I get enough likes on Facebook. Maybe it's my hobby. Maybe it's a new job. Maybe it's seeing my kids be honor students. And so, so I build my life on my kids. And at the end of the day, we always come up with the same sense of emptiness. Going, boy, that wasn't all it was cracked up to be. And the most dangerous place to be with that is when you have a lot of money. That's why Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Because you can always stuff yourself when you're rich. If you're scared, you hire more security. You're worried about your health, you go to the Mayo Clinic. You don't have any fun, you buy some more toys. You're lonely, you buy friends. But at the end of the day, Jesus says, listen, I'm the only one that can, that can fill you with living water. And I want to I encourage you to think about this at two levels. It starts, your first filling starts at conversion. It starts at salvation. Many of you have already done that. You've gone, hey, I, I already, like the woman at the well, found Christ, and he satisfied my soul. But I want to suggest to you and me that as Christians, we frequently leave that water and start drinking from a muddy stream. And I want to talk about that. But let me start with the concept of beginning to find a relationship with Christ and being satisfied. In Isaiah chapter 55, the prophet Isaiah said this. Ho, everyone that's thirsty, come to the waters. Come and drink freely. That's God's invitation. Come to me and drink freely. I will offer you my grace to satisfy you. I will fill you and you will be forgiven. But then he went on to say this, just two verses later. He said, let the wicked man forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and he will abundantly pardon him. And so what Jesus is going to do is he's going to show this woman that, listen, if you want me to satisfy you, you're going to have to turn away from your sins. You're going to have to be willing to realize that stuff ain't going to do it. Relationships ain't going to do it. And so if, if you're here this morning, Jesus is offering you living water, but he's asking you to forsake your way. Whatever it is that you've been trying, especially if it's disobedient to Christ or or away from Christ, or without Christ. You need to be willing to forsake that and freely return to him and say, Lord Jesus, I get it now. You're what I need. I'm willing to come to you and leave my past and be forgiven. Please do that. I assure you, I promise you, when you turn to Christ, you leave your life and turn and trust him that he will pour out his spirit on you and you will find that he's what you're looking for. But now I want to address God's people, because I am as guilty of this as, as, as the next person. You see, this idea of living water was not a new concept in the Old Testament. The songwriter said this, I'm prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And so the prophet Jeremiah spoke to God's people in Jeremiah 2.13, and, and this verse really has, has, has struck me over the years, because I, I see myself doing this. Listen to Jeremiah 2.13. God says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, 
the fountain of living waters. Now, why would anybody do that? Why would I forsake the fountain of living waters? Why would I, why would I wander from Jesus? He says, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to carve out their own cisterns, which is where they stored rainwater, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You see, in America, we're so comfortable. We're not worried about someone killing us. We're not willing, worried about where am I going to get enough bread to feed my kids today. And so it's very easy for us to begin to wander from the fountain of living water and drink from broken cisterns, like relationships and football and fame and fortune and Facebook, and stuff. At the end of the day, none of that stuff is going to satisfy us. And frequently, Christians go, man, you know, I haven't been with the Lord for a while. Well, why not? Well, we bought Satan's lie. We believe this, this, this age-old er- error that, man, this is what's going to make me happy. When, in fact, there's only one thing that's going to satisfy me. It's Christ. And so I want you to to ask yourself this morning, are you finding your chief delight in Christ? Are you finding that your relationship with Jesus is enough? The author of Hebrews said it this way, let your way of life be, be free from the love of money and possessions. He goes, be content with what you have. Why? Because he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You see, what Jesus wants us to realize is when Jesus is all we have, that's all we need. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my job. There are so many things I love in this life, but I have to constantly remind myself that those things are not there to satisfy me. Those things are not the ultimate reason for me to live. And anything less than Christ is building my life on sinking sand. The author of Hebrews said it this way. The word of God pierces to the the thoughts and motives of our heart, our intentions. And I find my heart so frequently thinking about some earthly thing that's really not going to satisfy me. I assure you, if you have the best spouse in the world, you're not going to be happy for the long haul. If you have more money than you can imagine, you're not going to be happy for the long haul. The Bible says, set your affections on things above, not on the things of this earth. Now, I want to press this a little further because the solution to this is not to go, all right, I need to start hating my stuff. I'm going to go home and punch my computer. I'm going to tear up my fantasy football and I'm going to, I'm going to quit ballet or I'm going to, no, the the solution here is to seek Christ, to spend time with Christ. To spend time with Christians and Christian music and Christian fellowship. To humble ourselves in repentance and mourning over our sin. And to ask God to fill us with a a new affection for Christ. You see, Jesus is so satisfying. I read a quote years ago that I've always found this to be very profound. There's a dispelling power in a changed affection. You see, what I want to encourage you to do is to find 
that as you're seeking Christ and spending time with him, those other things will pale. They won't have the same draw. Jesus said it this way in, in the parable of the, the, the pearl of great price. He said, there was a guy who, who was a pearl connoisseur and he loved pearls and he lived for pearls and he, and he bought and sold pearls. But one day he found a pearl that was so beautiful and so precious and so valuable to him. It says that he sold everything he had and for joy he bought that pearl. He didn't go, oh, I have to give up this, I have to give up this, I have to give up this. For joy, he bought that pearl. That's what Christ is offering to us. He's offering to us to say, listen, fix your eyes on me. Walk with me. Turn away from your sins and and let me capture your heart. And as you and I do that, we will find that our satisfaction as we spend time in prayer, time in his word, time in repentance and faith and dwelling on his promises, that we'll find that Jesus really is all that he offers to us. And so this morning, again, we'll remind you that the abundant life comes when we, when we find our satisfaction in the all-sufficient Savior. Notice how Jesus is going to have to deal with this woman. We're going to have to deal with your sin, ma'am, if you're going to find your way to satisfaction. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, you're right about that. For you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Five husbands? My wife always says, I don't think I'll ever remarry. Once was enough, right? (laughs) Five husbands? Even in Jewish tradition, I read that you maxed out at three. What happened? Did they all die? Did she have antifreeze in their, in their Gatorade? Was she taking them out? Did she divorce five times? And if that's not enough, she probably figured, let's forget the marriage thing. Let's just try living together. Jesus says, the guy you now have is not your husband. This woman had made a mess of her lives. There's no Humpty Dumpties with Jesus. He wants to put this woman back together again. But he's got to deal with her sin. Now, I want to suggest to you that Jesus told her a lot more about herself than just this. Because I want you to go with me over to verse 28 when we read that the woman left the water pot, went to the city. Now, note carefully. And she said to the men, this conversation with Jesus so rocked her world that she went back to her little village and she, and she calls all the men. Note that, all the men, right? She doesn't call the ladies. She calls all the men. Now, let's, let's, let's run with that for a minute. I'm going to suggest that there were probably a few more men that were more familiar with this woman than they should have been. And the woman says to the men, hey guys, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. All of them. And I wonder if there weren't a couple fellas out there going, all of them? I thought I got away with it. Isn't this just a a great reminder that what's the point of hiding our sin from Christ? The Bible says, he that covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. 
And so Jesus deals with her sin. He's so gentle with her, and he's inviting her to himself, but he wants her to know that he's aware of her sin. And I need to hear that too. Christ is aware of my sin, and he still loves me, and he still invites me to come back to him. The second thing I want us to note this morning as we're pursuing this abundant life is, is that I want to find my satisfaction in Christ and forsake those sin that, that, that doesn't satisfy. But secondly, I want to learn to be a spirit-filled, Christ-centered worshiper. You see, Jesus didn't just save us to give us hell insurance. He saved us to upgrade our worship, to fix our worship problem. Look at verse 20. The woman says, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say, in Jerusalem is where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know Messiah is coming, who's called Christ. When he comes, he'll declare all things to us. And Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. Jesus points out to this woman that she has a worship problem. I want to commend to you a series of books. If any of you have ever read anything from CCEF, the Christian Counseling Education Foundation, one of, I think, their, their best insights is the whole idea that the scriptures teach we all have a worship problem. You see, Jesus isn't just teaching here that some people are worshipers and some aren't. And of those who are worshipers, some of them got it right and some don't. The reality is, we're all worshipers. The problem is the majority of the world has misplaced worship. We were created to worship, and we will always worship. It's just a question of who and what and why we worship. And this all fell apart when Adam sinned. Romans chapter 1 says this about all of us, not just heathens who are bowing down to snakes. Romans chapter 1 says, even though mankind knew God, we don't honor him as God. We're not thankful. And then it says this, we exchange the truth about God for a lie and we worship and serve his creation rather than the creator who is God blessed forever. See, we all have a worship problem. I'm so glad it finally has come out. Last weekend, at the beginning of the football game, the announcer said, and now it's time for our weekend worship. Finally, it's out on the table, right? Because you can't tell me as you watch people absolutely lose themselves and go crazy that they're not worshiping. And then some of you have recently heard the country music song, You're Holy holy, holy. And he's talking to his girlfriend. You see, we're all worshipers. We're all adoring and, and, and valuing and idolizing something 
The problem is, it's frequently not Christ. We were created to worship. God desires our worship. God has made possible our worship. So I want to I talk about Christian worship for a moment or two because it's, it's such an important thing in our lives. God commands us to worship and serve him. So you, you might go, well, I, I'm, not, I'm not, not really a worshiper. Yeah, you're a worshiper. It just might be that you've misplaced your worship. So I want to talk about Christian worship for a moment because we, we tend to, to limit Christian worship to music. Come back for a night of worship tonight. Now, music is a part of worship. But relatively speaking, it's a small part of worship. There's 168 hours in the week. I doubt we spend a whole lot of them singing. And worship with our lips when our heart is far from Christ is not only neutral, it's offensive to God. So I want to talk about Christian worship for a moment and remind you, when Jesus says God is seeking those who worship him in spirit and in truth, I think that what God's telling us is true Christian worship is through the Holy Spirit and it's centered on Christ. And then I want to talk about how that plays out. Paul said it this way in Philippians chapter 3. He goes, we're the true circumcision. We worship by the Holy Spirit and we glory in Christ. and We take no pleasure or confidence in the flesh. So, so when, when God talks about worshiping him in the spirit, I think he means the Holy Spirit. Worship apart from being indwelled by the Holy Spirit is empty. It's just gone through motions. You can say all the Our Fathers you want. You can come and do your Mass and pray the Rosary and do anything you want. You can bow down 100 times a day. You can bow to Mecca. You can bow to Manhattan. But only after you've been born again and the Spirit of God dwells in you can you worship by the Spirit and glory in Christ. It's Christ-centered. It's, it's, not, it's not focusing on me. I didn't get much out of it. It's focusing on Christ. It's, it's rejoicing and praising Christ. But it's far more than singing. And this is something that that, that I really want you to think about this week, and I want to think about this, is that worship is a lifestyle. The book of Romans chapter 12 says that once you become a Christian, we're to present our bodies to Christ as a living sacrifice. This is our spiritual service of worship. The way I treat my wife, the way I treat my fellow employees, what I do with my time, these are all opportunities to worship. God's far more impressed far more concerned that we worship him with our lifestyle than with our lips and music for an hour. And so I want you to think of worship as something as mundane as doing dishes and changing diapers and going to work and making good decisions and spending time with Christ. It's really exciting. The Bible says that we're all priests in 1 Peter 2, and it says, and we can all offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. How about this one? Do you ever think of your giving as an act of worship? When the plate comes around, we shouldn't go, and now we're going to take a time out. The Mac machines are in the back, and we're going to take an offering. We'll be back after this break. The offering is worship. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, I have received your gift. It is a fragrant offering, a sacrifice well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your needs. As you think about your giving, your worship is not so much what you give, but what we keep. 
You might say, well, look how much I gave to God. Well, that's very, very variable. Depends on what we keep. So I want to encourage you to consider that sharing of your stuff is worship. The author of Hebrews said it this way. Let us do good and share what we have. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. You ready for this? Here's a way you can worship Christ this week. Talk to someone about Christ. Confess Christ as your Savior. That's a form of worship. Hebrews 13 says this. Let us therefore offer up an acceptable sacrifice to God. The fruit of our lips that confess his name. As you go out and, and you speak of Christ. And you live for Christ. And you love Christ. That's worship. And it's a great privilege for us. To worship the Lord Jesus. Well, the last thing we're going to look at this morning is that the abundant life is found as we enter into service and in seeking to win souls for Christ. It's exciting. It's exciting after you become a Christian to hear the master's call. Hark is the master's voice I hear out in the desert, dark and drear, calling the sheep who've gone astray far from the the wandering fold away. Who'll go and help this shepherd find? Help him the, the lonely ones to find. Who'll bring the lost ones to the fold where they'll be sheltered from the cold? Jesus is no longer on earth. He's given us the privilege to be involved in the work of winning souls. And I'm not talking about standing on street corners preaching. I'm talking about anything you and I do to advance the gospel of Christ. And that can be setting up chairs. That can be Bowing your knees and pleading with God for that lost neighbor or loved one. That can be giving to missions. That can be building relationships and making yourself a servant to unbelievers. That by all means you can see God use you to draw them to yourself. This is a great passage and I want to end with this this morning. At this point his disciples came, verse 27, and they marveled that Jesus had been speaking with the woman. But they didn't say, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men... Come see a man who told me all that I've done. This isn't the Christ, is it? Now notice verse 30. They went out of the city and were coming to him. I don't know how far away the well was from the city, but I don't think it was that far. I built a city that's so far from the well, it takes half a day. So, 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 so let's suggest that there's some conversations going on. This woman has gone back. These men are now beginning their walk to the well to meet Jesus. Maybe the, the dust of their feet on this, this, this trail is already rising up in, in the background. And there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, on the horizon, little specks of men coming towards Jesus. Meanwhile, the disciples said to Jesus, Rabbi, eat. Now, did, did you order the, the grilled or, or the, the waffle fries? And Jesus says in verse 32, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And they're like, you crazy, you just sent me walking through this heat and you had lunch with you? No. He says, verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Can I tell you this? There is nothing more satisfying in life than to do what God wants you to do. Do you believe that? There's no safer place to be in this life than to be where God wants you to be. This doesn't come natural. This is spiritual. This is a work of God's grace. 
that he draws us to realize, I'm not here for me anymore. He saved me that I would no longer live for myself but for him. And the joyful thing is he wants to use you. So now Jesus turns our attention to the work of winning souls. He says, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Now, some have suggested, oh, you know, what is it, January right now? And it's going four months from now. I don't know that he's giving them a, a lesson in agriculture. I don't think Jesus was an Aggie. But do note this. He says, behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields for they're white for harvest. Tell you what I think he's doing. He's going, see that group of people coming right now? The fields are white for harvest. You remember what he said about this in, in Matthew? Harvest is plenteous and laborers are few. There's 7 billion people on this earth. And on the Northeast Corridor, there's millions of them. Philly itself, what, 3 million? There's people everywhere that need Christ. And the sad thing is half the Christians in America are walking around like they don't even care, like they don't even notice. It doesn't even come across their radar. Jesus says, already he who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. It's a beautiful analogy in soul winning. One sows, one waters, God gives the increase. Reaping is usually when someone comes to know Christ. But I want to point out something that's really important here when it comes to soul winning. Don't worry about who actually leads the person to Christ. It doesn't matter. God's the one that saves souls. Success in soul winning is not about did you lead them to Christ. Paul says one sows, one waters. But then he says this, and write this down, 1 Corinthians 3. He says each man will be rewarded for his labor. If you've been working with someone, building a relationship, maybe you brought someone this morning and suddenly they get saved, don't go, oh man, I've been witnessing to him for two years and Pastor Tom got to win him to Christ. He's gonna get the reward. No, God is using you and, 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 and all of us are engaged in this. And I wanna invite some of you to get in a game with us. People are lost. And the the starting point is to start praying for the lost. Pray that the Spirit of God will be poured out in a powerful way in Bucks County, in our community, that people will be coming to repentance, that Christians in America will wake up and that we'll live our lives, Spirit-filled, Christ-centered lives that attract unbelievers. But I also want to encourage those of you that are in the game. You're, You're faithfully living for Christ You're sharing your faith. You're you're loving your kids. You're doing things God's way. Would you pray for our church? Isn't it a joy to see how God's working? More and more people are coming here. They're coming here because the Spirit of God is at work. But the harvest is plenteous. The labors are few. And ask yourself, how much labor are you putting in towards the advancement of the gospel? When all is said and done, how much is said and how much is done? What are you doing for the cause of Christ? Praying? Giving? You say, oh, pastor, that's not my personality, so I just witness by my life. Survey says, God wants you to witness by your life and your lips. Well, I don't know how to do that. 
Well, we'll train you. But I'm really excited. I believe that God has a, a great harvest. Not only here. Talk to Austin and hear of the great revival that he told us about in Syria among the refugees. That people are coming to Christ in droves. Muslims. Flocking to Christ. Would you ask God with me that that would take place in our community? Among our kids. Among our family and friends. Let's pray that God will enable us as a church to join together in this great cause of winning the loss to Christ. Because remember, Jesus said, night comes when no man can work. I want to send you out with prayer and commendation to God, asking the Lord to give you divine appointments. You don't have to rush out here to the, to the, to the market and pass out tracts, but begin to develop redemptive relationships. Begin to think in terms of people no longer as people, Paul says, I no longer regard any man according to the flesh. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. As you meet your friends and family members, ask yourself, does this person know Christ? And if they don't, what could I do to enhance that? That's going to take sacrifice. Paul said, I'm free from all men, but I've made myself a servant to all that I might win some. The joy is that Jesus wants to do this through you. He didn't say, go out there and fish for men. He said, follow me and I'll make you to be a fisher of men. In your own quiet, personal way, ask God to use you in this great harvest of bringing people to Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the abundant life that Jesus so freely gives. Thank you that we have, we have drunk freely from the well of living water. And we praise you, Jesus, for giving us the spirit. And I pray that your spirit will spring up within your people this morning. <coughs> if our sins and idols have clogged the well, remove them this morning and open up a fresh spring of living water that flows from our belly. Lord, may we find our joy in you. May we find our hope in you. And may your people... Be overflowing with love and concern. I'll be the first one to ask you to help me not to have a hardened heart. Help me not to waste my life with stupid stuff that doesn't matter. But to realize, Christ, that our real food is to do your will. Our real joy is found in our relationship with you. And our purpose here is to worship and be involved in the service of winning the lost to Christ. Lord, pour out upon us a great work. May the, may the walls of this church burst with seekers who are coming under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Lord, use us for your glory and for your fame. And we gladly present ourselves to you to allow you to use our hands and feet for the advancement of your gospel all over the world. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory alone. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. I'll see you, Lord willing, next Sunday. <clears throat>